going from the barefoot college kid to the tie-wearing father of two. Um, and let me tell you, my, my children are an immeasurable blessing. I'm very sad that Sarah had to take Clara to um, urgent care this morning, but she's good. But otherwise, with the exception of the sicknesses and the cryings, they are beautiful, they are happy, they look more like me than my wife, which actually might be a consequence of the curse of the fall, not a blessing, but uh, they're, they're becoming a perfect sermon illustration. I mean, seriously, I used to be jealous of pastors who could tell this really winsome, beautiful story about their kids and then, boom, drop a theological point right out of it. And so I'm excited that I need to start writing these things down. There's stuff happening. And so, uh, for instance, uh, Judah, my two-year-old, was grabbing my iPhone, um, which he could probably navigate better than some of us in here. And, And as he grabbed it, I said, no, Judah, don't grab daddy's phone. And so he stopped. And he looked at me, and he reached over, and he grabbed my phone. And I thought, you little sinner. (laughs) And then I realized, he has my eyes. And I've looked at God the exact same way. Or how about this? Uh, When I was was talking to Judah about something else random this week, he was sitting there playing on the ground, doing whatever with his cars, causing accidents. I don't know where he got that from. And so he is uh, he's playing on the ground, and he, he just randomly looks up at me, and he says, I love you, Daddy. And, like, my heart just <laughs> exploded. And he's only two years old, and I can't even count how many times my heart has already exploded. It's, it's an amazing feeling. And then I, I'm compelled to realize that I'm made in the image of God who is a father. So how might God's heart explode every time that I take the time to express my love for him, whether it's driving in the car, singing to the radio, or gathering with my brothers and sisters and singing of his love? Like, I want that feeling all the time. And so I can only imagine how much more I want to give that feeling to the Lord. I want to make his heart explode by explaining and and praising him. Showing my love for him. So pay attention. From, from now on, there's going to be moments where my kids and my wife make cameos in my sermons. Uh, because God reveals himself to me uh, through the working out of his word in, in the life of my family. And he probably does in yours too. So this morning's text uh, led me to think about the title, Not Far From the Kingdom and then I opened the commentary and found that somebody had already used it. So I had two thoughts. Uh, one, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, two, I, I still thought of this first. So in either way, I'm going with it. And, and I thought for a second, though, maybe I'd switch it up and I'd go with, uh, missed it by that much. Okay, there's some left. Some people got that. I was afraid, though, that for the rest of you that didn't get that, I was going to lose you. So we're going to stick with not far from the kingdom um, for the title. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this comes directly from uh, the text that we're in, Mark chapter twelve, verses twenty-eight through thirty-seven. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or swipe in your devices to Mark twelve, twenty-eight through thirty-seven. Before we stand and read the text together, uh, let's take a moment to kind of establish our context. Um, 
Last week, Pastor Brad had the daunting task of tackling three sections of this one chapter, uh, which is really, this is one extended scene. Uh, If you think about it, looking at, at all we've done in Mark so far, this is really kind of the longest focused moment for Mark because he's jumping between stories all the time. But this is all one extended scene. And we're going to see why he spends that kind of time here. Because starting in Mark 11, so even going back a chapter, we have three brilliant responses to the religious rulers of the day, the, um, the Sanhedrin. All of the different parties of the Sanhedrin are represented. And from the Pharisees to Sadducees to scribes to Herodians, And as with any group of people that have authority, uh, the Sanhedrin became known for red tape and uh, and arguments. But all of these factions, they had unified against what they thought was a common threat, Jesus. So first they challenged Jesus' authority. So he answers them with the question that they were that they were afraid to answer. Jesus turns it around and gives them a question, and they can't even answer it because their answer would acknowledge Jesus' authority. It was beautiful. And then he he proceeds to tell a parable that establishes his authority. And they are so stumped by his use of Scripture uh, that they they huddle up. They get back together, like, okay, what are we going to do? And out of the huddle comes a Pharisee and a Herodian to ask an economical question. Surely, you know, this religious person will be trapped by this economical question and they're going to they're gonna trap him, they're thinking. So Jesus' perfect answer to that question causes them and all who hear to, to just stand there and marvel at him. We're talking slack-jawed, squinting marvel from all those who are hearing this answer. So then the Sadducees, This is hilarious. The Sadducees, who don't even believe in life after death, they ask a question that presupposes life after death. So how ridiculous is that? The groupings of leaders, they're clearly just grasping for anything at this point. So they fabricate this hypothetical question, and and ultimately it just points to their own ignorance. And Jesus succinctly points this out in a chiastic pattern that begins and ends with, you're wrong. And so now we arrive at our text. So consider this context uh, as we stand and read the scripture together. This is from the ESV, uh, Mark 12, 28 through 37. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. It is, it is fascinating to me. As I did study this week, I found that 276 years ago, this week, uh, John Wesley opened his Bible in the morning and he encountered this text. Uh, Wesley, uh, for those of you not familiar, he was one of 19 children. So let that sink in for a second. Whose brother Charles wrote many of the, the hymns that we sing. And, and Wesley, John, left an indelible mark upon the entire planet through his preaching and his founding of what would become the Methodist Church. Uh, but before he began preaching the gospel in power, before that, he had tried his hardest for years to please God by doing good things, avoiding bad things, and trying with all his might. But 276 years ago this week, when he was in his mid-30s, Wesley heard and responded to the gospel. And his day began with this text, uh, particularly the words that Jesus says to the scribe, that you are not far from the kingdom of God. So Wesley heard this. He took comfort. And we'll talk about the impact of this verse on him in just a few minutes. Because Wesley has a lot in common uh, with the scribe here in our text. Scribes were somewhat like lawyers. Uh, Any of those here? Just a couple uh, anybody know a lawyer? They're, they're known for studying a lot. Uh, and they're known for language skills and particularly argumentation and maybe uh, some assumptions of authority and those kinds of things. The, uh, the scribe, you might expect that uh, if he's known this way, if he's a good argument, uh, argumentator, if that's the right word, if he has good language skills, if he's studied a lot, you might expect that as he comes dressed well, uh, to enter into this discussion, that he would bring a sharp question. So which, which commandment is the most important of all? And this may sound like he's yet another trap setter. Uh, because we, we hear this and we think, that is a pretty sharp question. Uh, but this kind of question has precedent at that time. This wasn't unusual. Uh, in a really famous incident a few years before Jesus began teaching, there was a rabbi named Hillel. And this rabbi was challenged by a Gentile who said, I'll convert if you can tell me the whole law while standing on one foot. And so the rabbi said, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. <laughs> and so I imagine, <laughs> I mean, that's a great answer. Uh, I like to imagine that, uh, that he was literally standing on one foot, and if he had a microphone, you know, he just dropped it right at that point. Like, go and learn it. Uh, But you recognize this, right? This is the golden rule, but flipped in in negative language. Because Jesus gives us this rule in positive language, where Hillel uses negative terms for the same thought. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So phrasing this question about the greatest commandment, it's not out of left field. It's not uh, particularly trapping. That's not the attitude that we get uh, from the scribe here. Rather, this this is an important question for the rabbis and the scribes especially, because it was said, it's, it's 
counted, somebody sat down and counted this, there's 613 commandments in the law. Uh, some of those in that number are probably the ones that were uh, added on, the, the rules that were fleshed out a little bit. But, and I, I'm going to wager that that's probably even more complicated than our own tax code, but I could be wrong. So a common question for people was, what's the greatest? We, how do we get our hands around 613 commandments? So the scribes especially would debate this. They would, uh, they would talk about the heavy commandments, the light commandments, the great and the not so great, and they would go back and forth and kind of argue about these things. But let me pause and clarify before we move any further that even, even the lightest commandment broken, uh, even the whitest lie told, or the most minuscule sin that's committed, it's enough to establish our separation from God's holiness. We must not forget and, and somehow try to compare our smaller, our lighter sins to our brother's huge sins and then attempt to justify ourselves in that process of comparison. God alone is just, and he doesn't play those games. So when the scribe asks this, uh, I often picture, you know, in my own mind, and you may be like this too, that he's, he's basically asking the same question that the rich young man asked from a couple chapters ago. Uh, he's asking, what must I do to be saved? What is the checklist of things I need to do? What is the greatest commandment that I can check off so that I know that God loves me? What is the thing that I can write down and end it? But then let's look at Jesus' brilliant answer here, starting in verse 29. He starts with the Shema. Hear, O Israel. So this line, this would have been deeply ingrained in the thought patterns of every Jew there. Because these are the words that opened every worship service in the synagogue. Every Sunday morning, they heard this. And if they were practicing properly... Even every day, they would repeat this to themselves and to their children. So these words, this was not new. And what Jesus makes clear is it is still the foundation of the greatest commandment. Even though they knew this, they assumed this, he continues with, You will love God with all, and actually you're going to explore all four of these in home groups this week, because the point that Jesus is making is you will love God with all, all of it, all of who you are. You will love the Lord your God. There are no hidden places in your life. There's no space reserved in your being. It's all poured out in love to the one God. And this is why. Because the whole person is the object of God's covenant love. So the whole person is claimed for God for himself. So let that sink in. The object of God's powerful love, sealed in covenant with us, is all of you. He loves all of you. And so every last bit is included in that. The parts that you hate, the parts that you hide, the things that you love to brag about, God loves all of it. And because he's given his son as a ransom for you, God deserves no less than all of it. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, all of it. As if that were not enough of a summary, then Jesus continues 
bringing in the truth that naturally flows from love for God, love for the other, for your neighbor. If you love God, you will love what he loves. If you love God, you'll love what he loves. The second is like unto the first. For more than the fact that they share the word love in there, it's the natural outcome of loving God with all of yourself. Deep love for God flows into love for other people. Our church family, our neighbors, our community. And and you see this play out in your own relationships, whether you've thought about it or not. Because my wife loves me. And I'm convinced of this because she can tell you the whole backstory of Darth Vader. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, which probably doesn't surprise some of you. And and when Sarah and I met, uh, it was just Star Wars. That movie's okay. So I had to fix that. And and Sarah's, Sarah's deep commitment to me, to love me, has caused her, in some sense, to love the things that I love. And that means a lot to me. If you're married to a Redskins fan, or a dog person, or a runner, your love for your spouse compels you to love what they love to some extent. You learn how to love it as you love them. It's connected. It flows. So how much more then, as we grow in love for a God who has so lavishly loved us, will we learn to grow in loving the things that he loves? And he loves people. Oh, how he loves the hurting people, the broken people, the lost people. He came as one to heal the sick, to rescue the lost. And he has designed the body of Christ uh, such that we are the vehicle for his love to each other, to our community, and ultimately to the whole world. So in John 13, we get this glimpse into Jesus' relationship with, uh, with his disciples during that last night when he was betrayed. We get this really intimate picture through all of what John explains, but Jesus explains to them the true fulfillment of, of this greatest commandment, the true context For the greatest commandment is in a new commandment, to love one another. And by this, they'll know that we're his. When when our identity is in Christ, as children of God, participants in the kingdom, we're known by love. And that's why the greatest commandment makes sense when our identity is in him who loves us. Uh, Jesus' really nuanced answer, uh, and it's very timely, it causes the scribe to immediately agree. Like, there's no argument at all. He's like, yes. Uh, And and notice that Jesus' answer, it summarizes the Ten Commandments. Uh, And remember how he did that when he summarized the law for the rich young ruler? Again, back in uh, Mark chapter 10. He's responding to the rich young ruler who's come to him, and, and this time he's even more succinct. He's more brilliant, if that's even possible, uh, because the first four commandments, they're all wrapped up in the first part of the great commandment. To love God with all that you are. And then the last six commandments, those are kind of wrapped up in the second part. Love your neighbor. And the scribe's heart 
resonated with Jesus' answer. He says, yes, this is all true. And then he says, furthermore, that to love God, what you, what you just said, Jesus, this is better than, this is more important than all the sacrifices. Now, <laughs> remember our context, okay? The scribe is saying this. This pharisaical scribe is making this statement in Jerusalem, in the temple, in front of the people who do the sacrifices. And nobody jumps in. Nobody says, hey, wait a minute. Everybody sees the truth in what Jesus says. Everybody's heart is burning with it, whether they're going to admit that or not. But this is what God requires. It's all of us, all of who you are. It's not just a momentary sacrifice. It's not just a monthly worship gathering. It's not just 10%. God wants and deserves all of you. So the response that Jesus then gives the the scribe uh, is really provocative. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So again, remember our context. Jesus is making this statement in front of the people who should be the closest to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says with authority, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And this one line says so much at once, which is like most of the things that Jesus would say. So let's jump back to John Wesley. He read these words in that morning. And as he uh, read them on May 24th, 1726, he was comforted. Uh, He was so much like this scribe. I mean, he'd gone to Oxford. He was highly educated like a scribe would be. He was really pious like all the Pharisees were. And Wesley had even tried to be a missionary, thinking that this would certainly please God. And that failed (laughs) miserably. And as he read this verse that morning, he was somehow comforted. Because on the one hand, being not far from the kingdom of God means uh, you're close, (laughs) And Jesus affirms this guy answered wisely. His thoughts are on the right trajectory. But on the other hand, being not far from the kingdom of God means you're not in the kingdom of God. So here's, here's where my kids were a blessing. I've learned that it's so important uh, that there's a, there's a qualitative distinction somehow between being two and being three. Although my son is larger than most three-year-olds that I know, and he's indeed, he's over two and a half He's not far from three. My wife is not going to let me call him a three-year-old. He's not far from it, but he's still two. Of course, that's common sense too, but uh, for the purpose of illustration. Even more qualitatively, there's a difference between a baby and a toddler, right? I mean, everybody, I guess, knows that. So my daughter just turned one, and she's pulling up on things, but she's not a toddler. She's not toddling, uh, whatever that means. Uh, she's not far from toddling, mind you. She's not far from that, but she's not toddling yet. So my wife will, again, not let me call her a toddler because she's not, right? She's not far from it, but she's not there. So, again, you, you've, you've, you've heard this before. Uh, the illustration that almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Uh, there is no almost in the kingdom, And then again, I think about there's so much drama and wailing and gnashing of teeth during NFL bowl game or NFL playoff games and NCAA bowl games. Like either it was a touchdown 
or it wasn't. If you're not far from a touchdown, you don't get any points. If you're not far from the kingdom, you're not in. Uh, and again, for me, there was, a, there was a U2 show in Raleigh about four years ago that was at Carter-Finley Stadium. Outdoors, it was a beautiful day. My wife was gracious enough to buy two tickets. We went early so I could soak it all in. Um, and, I, and I found out later that 440 got like locked up where people, there was gridlock. They couldn't get to the concert. And so there are some people who, hundreds of them actually, who were stuck on the beltway and they would actually get out of their cars and they tried to walk to get to Carter-Finley in time to see the show. I mean, they could hear the edges, you know, beautiful guitar strains because it was outdoor. But if you were to ask any of them if they were in, they, they would not say that they made it. They were not far from Carter-Finley Stadium, but they were not in. There is a distinction between being not far from the kingdom and being in the kingdom. Are you not far from the kingdom this morning? We'll come back to that. Because uh, in typical Mark fashion, uh, we've moved directly to the next moment of teaching. And Jesus is basically, like, he's tired of receiving questions. And the text says they didn't dare ask him any more questions anyways. And so he turns the tables and asks them a question. And in this particular question, he's clarifying the answer he just gave. We are to love God with all of ourselves, right? But who is the object of our love? Okay, God is. But even more specifically, who is the object of our love? Jesus is saying, it's me. Jesus is God. Because there's already a prevailing understanding that the Messiah would be of the line of David, right? Uh, Jesus' question is a, it's a rhetorical one. Uh, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? Uh, he's provoking them to think about all that the Bible said about the Messiah. So this is something that we should probably know as well if we confess that Jesus is the Messiah. So where does it say this? Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, right in, in the midst of uh, David's life, he hears these words. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So there's one way that the scribes knew that the Christ was the son of David. But also in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Hopefully you recognize that as a messianic prophecy that we read at Christmas. Uh, for unto you is born. So this is a promise to David, specifically on the throne of David. And then also in Jeremiah. 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So at once, these prophets are saying what the people need to hear. They need to know that this good and just king is coming, but they're also hearing he's coming from David. So there's, there's even more than just these three. Uh, so this question would, would have potentially caught them off guard because especially the scribes as they're listening, uh, so far Jesus had been like really on point 
and subversive even, like causing people to think with his answers. And then he asks an easy one. This is a softball. But, not to say the softball is easy, uh, but it quickly becomes not so easy. Because Jesus shapes this psalm of David up to be like a contradictory statement. So Jesus points out that David calls him Lord. So how can he be the Messiah and also be David's subordinate, his son? What's happening here? This is not an easy question anymore. Because in Jewish categories, the son was always subordinate to the father. So what's beautiful here is that Jesus is teaching us Christology and Trinitarian theology in this single moment. Because the descendant of David is somehow yet greater than David and practically equal in sovereignty with the God who is one that Jesus just clarified a moment earlier. So Jesus is not setting up a dual God formula, but rather he is teaching of the Messiah's divinity at the same time that he's emphasizing the Messiah's humanity as a descendant of David. Because for God's plan to be realized, for our redemption to be realized, the Messiah must be both fully human to be our representative and fully God to satisfy God's holiness and fulfill what the prophets had said. As if we hadn't figured this out by now, Jesus is brilliant. I love the way he treats the scripture here. When you look at the way he speaks, even from last week, we saw that he used Exodus to answer a question about resurrection, Deuteronomy and Leviticus to answer the greatest commandment. And now he uses a psalm, all with the same authority and trust. So what we should take from this is that we can trust the scriptures. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And they all point to Jesus. They're all connected even in a seemingly contradictory moment like this. So clarification of language can can be helpful. When we look at the Septuagint text, this is Psalm 110 that Jesus is quoting, Psalm 110. Uh, It shows that the first Lord, you see those four letters in caps. uh, That means, it stands in for, in Hebrew text, Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. This is the personal covenant name of God that's so holy that the Jewish people wouldn't even write it down. They had to substitute something else in because of how much they exalted this name that God had given. So we see Yahweh, and then we see the second Lord is actually the word Adonai. And it also can translate as like the sovereign one, the ruler. So it's like saying, and Yahweh said to Adonai, which is a little bit easier for us to kind of get at. Uh, Or think about in in Psalm 8, if you get a chance to look at that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic and excellent is your name. So this is yet another time where I've preached about this before, but English is a little bit inadequate for really getting at the glory of God's name and his character. Because Jesus is pointing us to truth about himself. That he is divine and human, completely both. The term Adonai is usually reserved for God in the scriptures. So for Yahweh to address Adonai 
is for Yahweh to address an equal who would sit at his right hand, and, and then Yahweh is going to put enemies under this person's feet. So when you think about this image, this isn't just an earthly lord or, or king like David that we're talking about. This is another level. So what thoughts is Jesus provoking in these people, in the scholars? What is he provoking us to think about? He's provoking us to consider who is this king of glory? Who is this that David would consider the king of Israel, the sovereign one, just as Yahweh? It's the Messiah. It's the one we've been waiting for. The Messiah is not just continuing the kingdom of David. It's a wholly different kingdom. And so we rightly affirm that him who sits at God's right hand, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And we see that this this teaching moment right here, this is a good old thrashing of the gathered religious leaders. And it pleases the great throngs, right? It's so much more, though, than just a pep rally for thought-provoking teaching. This question from Jesus, uh, this was pivotal to Peter and the apostles. Because at Pentecost, in his breathtakingly beautiful sermon about uh, who Jesus is, it's, it's recorded for us in Acts, if you want to take a look. Peter cites this psalm. So Peter remembered this moment in the temple when Jesus dropped this psalm on everybody. And Peter cites it, and then he says, Let Israel be assured of this, that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And not only Peter, but the writer of Hebrews, who gives us a a beautiful Christology through that whole book, he points out in the very first chapter that Jesus is higher than any angel because this psalm is about Jesus, the Messiah, who would sit at God's right hand with his enemies at his feet. Nothing and no one else in all of creation can do this. Only Jesus. So this king above all kings, who sits at God's right hand, what does he deserve? He deserves all of it. And Pastor Brad reminded me this week that this is even a continued answer. This is connected to uh, the question about what belongs to Caesar. Just as, G- as, as Jesus said, certainly, uh, you know, give Caesar his idols, that money that bears that his inscription. Give that to Caesar, but give God all that is his. And so now Jesus is connecting that in again. He says, uh, the Messiah who sits at God's right hand, <laughs> you should give him Uh, everything. Love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Give him what he is due. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this out here, that when you love him with everything, when you love your neighbor as yourself, I'm gonna go so far as to say that no one you know is far from the kingdom. Uh, Nobody that you know is far from the kingdom of God. Uh, Your neighbors, your family, Uh, nobody's far from the kingdom of God. Why? Because they know you. So nobody you know is far from the kingdom of God if they know you. And if you have confessed that Christ is Lord, if you serve him and follow him, if you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're a participant in the kingdom of God, and thus nobody you know is far from the kingdom. So what does that mean for us? Well, let me ask you, are your feet 
beautiful this morning? If that sounds awkward, uh, check Romans 10, 15 real quick. Uh, Have you been so moved by God's great love for you that you are learning to love who he loves? So John Wesley, with these words ringing in his mind, he goes to a Bible study that night. He hears Martin Luther's treatment of uh, Romans being read during a Bible study. Uh, And as he's sitting there, He hears about how God's work in the heart of one who trusts Christ, that that faith in Christ alone brings salvation. uh, And God brings Wesley a strange warming of his heart. And he felt confirmation for what he'd been struggling to believe. God opened his eyes to the fact that John Wesley's piety did not bring him to God, but rather God himself, he brings himself to us in the person and work of the Messiah, Jesus. And faith in Jesus alone will save us from sin and death. So the scribe, he's not far from the kingdom of God, not because he was smart or dressed well or because he was a good person. Wesley was not any closer to God because, I mean, he was an awful missionary. (laughs) Paul in Acts 17 clarifies this for us. Uh, When he's preaching to the Greeks at Mars Hill, I'm jealous of the Wyants because they're going to Athens uh, this week. And as Paul preaches this sermon, this teaching moment in Acts 17, he says in that context, yet he, God, is actually not far from any one of us. Now, this is a really subtle difference in phrasing, but, but let this settle in your minds. Let this uh, clarify this for us, that God is not far from us. He has come to us. He meets us in our sin, in our suffering, in our weakness. The scribe is not far from the kingdom of God, not because he answered well and thus earned Jesus' favor, not because he was a good person, but because the scribe's answer shows us his heart's position. He realized there was nothing he could do but love God and trust him. John Wesley was not far from the kingdom, not because he was born into a Christian family, not because his brother wrote beautiful hymns, not because he was a good person, but because Jesus drew near to him. And Wesley's heart position showed that he finally simply trusted Jesus alone for salvation. So hear me. It's entirely possible uh, that you've, Grown up in the church, you've godly parents, but you're not far from the kingdom. But you're not going to follow Jesus into the kingdom. It's entirely possible to study theology and not become a Christian. You might know the scriptures more than any of the preachers and not be a believer in Jesus. It's possible to hear the gospel preached all your life and you may still be trusting your own goodness before God. It's possible to fool everybody around you. It's possible to be within an inch of the kingdom. But church, take heart. Do you believe that God's Messiah is his son, Jesus? Do you believe that he was killed in your place and that his life and death satisfy God's demands for perfection? Do you believe that he was truly, literally raised from the dead? Then live confidently in response to this. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, 
Repent of your own goodness and rest in Jesus' goodness in your place. Be baptized as a sign of your trust in him. Walk the way of the disciple, which is the way of the king, which is the way of the cross. And know that as you walk the way with all those who have gone before and all those gathered here and around the globe who also confess that Christ is who he says he is, the Lord of lords who sits at the right hand of God the Father. What this good king asks of us is to love him with all that we are and to love those that he loves, the least, the last, the lost. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you meet us. You've come to us through your word and through your people. We thank you that you have shown to us the mystery of your, your plan in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that explains to us what you expect. And even though it points out to us that we cannot keep these commandments perfectly, we can't do it. You have pointed us directly at your son who does do it perfectly on our behalf. And then through the power of your spirit, you enable us to do it. And you call us out to do it together. To love you with all of our hearts. To love you with all of our souls. To love you with all of our minds. To love you with all of our strength. And then to love our neighbor, to love the other as we love ourselves. We thank you that you have done everything that we need to do in and through Christ to help us to trust him, to rest in him. And then from that rest, from that place of security in your love for us, help us to learn to love, to grow in love, so that everybody around us might know that we're yours because of how we love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? Well, let's go out this week and remember what we've learned here today. I would encourage you to keep uh, praying about the um, nominations for deacons and elders uh, this week. Um, Other prayer requests that you see in your bulletin, keep that with you and stay in prayer and in the word this week. And let's just um, think again about um, some of the words that Jesus uh, has been speaking to us uh, through uh, Mark that we've been studying. And as, you know, Jesus frequently quotes scripture, which, of course, in his day was the Old Testament. And we were talking about that today. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet from the Psalms. And referring to himself, and I'd like to send this out to you this week, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, 
and is it marvelous in our eyes. Marvel on that this week and go in peace.